imaginary family out on Highway 80 that they got their minivan or whatever they were in got, got smashed and this whole missionary family headed for the mission field is, is dead. And you go, well, why would that happen when they had such a God-glorifying purpose for their life? Because the reality is you can, you can be prayed up all you want to and God can change everything that you understand about your life. He can intersect your life in any way that he wants to. So the one problem of this presumptuous individual is that they don't actually know the future. They presume on their ability to take care of themselves. And their second shortfall here is that the the sin of seeing their life as inevitable or seeing their life as long, God asks, or uh, God through James asks the question, what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So the second point here is, is the brevity of life. You don't know the future and life is short. Life is a breath, a vapor. It shows up for a, sh- a short time, then it disappears like a mist or a bit of smoke. And that fits with the theme that James has already brought up, that the rich person should rejoice in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. That if you live for something in this present world, especially here, just material wealth, that it all goes away because your life goes away. Your life can be ended at any point. And even if you live to be 95, your life is still a vapor. The material things still do not have surpassing value. So you don't know the future and life is short. It's presumptuous of you to make these plans without consideration of the Lord. And he says that that it's a sin of boasting in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Uh, so here we have the heart exposed. So this presumptuous person is not just a person making plans. This is a person who, as they're making their plans, they're making it without consideration of God or of their own finiteness, that they are small and that God is big. And so such a person is arrogant and boastful. This person thinks he holds his own life in his hands. He thinks that he's the master of his own fate, when in reality, Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The instruction, the positive side of this, here's what you ought to do instead. If the Lord will, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So the planning is fine. You can go, I'm going to plan on doing this or that. And the making profit, the this or that that I'm doing is to go into town and to work and trade and make my profit. But the big, huge caveat that isn't just a caveat, but represents a whole change in perspective as to why and how you are doing something is, if the Lord wills, I'm going to live and I'm going to go do this or that. You live before God. Everything you do is in his hands. It's interesting that this godly perspective that James encourages here even adds the, if the Lord wills, we will live. (laughs) Like, if God wills, I'll wake up tomorrow (laughs) and I'll be able to do those things. So the whole plan, the whole endeavor, your very life is in 
is dependent upon the will of God as to whether it comes out the way that you planned or whether it comes out some different way. So since you don't know the future and life doesn't last forever, you have to live your life submitted to the will of the one who does know the future and who does live forever. That's the human weakness that James brings out here is you don't know the future and you don't live forever. And so you live according to God's will. He does know what tomorrow is. So if the Lord wills, I will live. And he does um, uh, live forever. He doesn't pass away like a vapor. And so we as creations live before God, recognizing that he is an entirely different class than us. And all of our plans are in his hands and everything is dependent upon him. Man here is simply a creator, a creature, while God is the creator. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He is high, and we are uh, dependent on him. There's a couple theological principles that are at play here. Pastor Matt brought it up last week in reference to the fact that I've been teaching the Iwana kids about this, and that is these, these uh, truths we learn in Scripture— that God as the creator is transcendent. He's high. He is over us. And uh, what comes with that is what in theology we call the, the creator-creation distinction. That is, there's a difference between the creator and the creation. Um, he is an entirely different class of being than we are. Saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that, is a million miles different than saying, well, if my boss wants me to do it, I'll, I'll do this or that. Like, that's one little authority that's just a notch above you about how, who's in charge of your day. My, my boss wants me to do this or that. That's a little bit of a distinction but the distinction between creator and creation is huge. There's this vast distinction between the creator and the creation. He pre-existed us. He made us. He's an entirely different class. He's infinitely over us, and we exist for him. Uh, he, the, you will not wake up tomorrow unless the Lord wills it to be so, and your plans will come to nothing unless it's what the Lord wills to be so. In its very details, your life is all in his hands. Um, along with God's transcendence, the fact that he is over and above and higher and different than we are, is God's eminence. That is, that he is near, or I explained it to the Iwana kids, that even though he is high and lifted up over us, that he actually is involved and cares he does both of those things. He is high, but he's also involved, and he cares. And this is that, that although there is a distinction between the creator and the creation, and there's this vast gulf and that he is so different than us, there's also this creator-creature crea uh, creator relation, that there's a relationship between us and our God. Um, and in, in this particular verse, even though he is high and infinitely over us and entirely different than us, and that might make him seem like his, he's detached. 
he's actually not detached because even though he's infinitely bigger than you, he still has a will for you. So an individual person could say, even though you're just one of seven billion people on the planet and our planet is a a rock in space, okay? Even though you're so small compared to the creator, he actually has a will for you such that you, little old you, can say, well, God willing, I'll wake up tomorrow and go about these plans that I have (laughs) if it's according to God's will, according to his purposes. And God's will is actually so detailed that he might actually be involved in your life. Well, he actually is. Um, And he is near and close to us and has a will for us. And so to live without acknowledging God's superiority to us and his right to control the details of our lives, then we are just being a presumptuous and boastful and arrogant person. Um, We are subject to mortality and to the ebbs and flows of life. And really, we're quite fragile. I remember having a coworker who had I don't remember what it, what his condition was, but but uh, uh, he had some condition where uh, uh, something with his heart or or uh, I can't remember what it was. I apologize, but he had a condition where he could be lights out at any second, and uh, this is a good reminder. We are really fragile because it's actually true for any of us. They actually knew he had a condition. But the, it could be the case with any of us. We could be, we could be gone at any moment. And we're, sub, we're subject to mortality and the ebbs and flows of life. And God is not. Nothing changes God's plans. Um, and also, God's will is good. A person who can say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In so doing, we're not just recognizing that God does have a will and that he's actually in control. But we should also recognize If my plans get changed by God's purposes, that's actually a good thing. If his his will is different than mine right now, that's actually a really good thing. In the Lord's Prayer, we're commanded to pray, Thy will be done. Like that should be the desire of our hearts, is for God's purposes to be accomplished, even if they're different than ours. So, This isn't just a resignation to God's will, but a trust in God's will and in the goodness of God's will. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Before we move to chapter 5, any further thoughts there on this presumption, the sin of presumption, and how we're called to live uh, in contrast? It's interesting that this is the paragraph where we have verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That, that verse that, that uh, broadly applied means that, um, well, kind of like what I mentioned earlier, that there is such a thing as a sin of commission, of not doing something you should be doing. So it's not just about not doing the things we shouldn't be doing, but it's also about doing the things we should be doing and so if you know that something is the right thing to do and you don't do it, that it is sin. And here is the context. 
So his most direct application here is, if you know that you're supposed to go, if God wills, I will do this or that, then not doing that is sinful. To live in this presumptuous manner, not submitted to the will of God and his prerogative to, to uh, move, to change, to dictate how your life plays out, then it's sinful for you to not live before the face of God in that way. Mm -hmm. On to chapter 5, the second, come now. So we've got, come now, you presumptuous, boastful, arrogant person. You should live before the will of God. Now we've got, come now, you rich. This passage is kind of brutal. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When you read through here, um, it it seems to be speaking to unbelievers, to people who will face God's wrath because they have loved all the idols of this world and the riches of this world, and in so doing, they've mistreated others as they accumulate gain for themselves. So there's miseries coming upon this person, that their wealth is going to stand as evidence against them, um, there's gonna, the cries of the people who they have oppressed are, are falling on the very ears of God, which, which reminds us that God is going to act in justice against this particular kind of rich person. And these people are living in self-indulgence and murder. Um, and so, so it seems to be using, uh, to speaking most directly to unsaved people, um, because they love the idols of this world and are going to face judgment for it. Back in chapter 1, James had encouraged rich Christians to rejoice in that they had been humbled. It says, let the, the lowly brother rejoice in that he's been exalted, but the rich in that he has been brought down. And uh, if you think about it, and you look at the weightiness of this passage about this rich person who's abusing others and is going to face God's judgment— and if you're a rich person who has been brought to Jesus Christ and you're reading this passage in James and going, whoa, look what kind of poisonous grip riches had on me and the terrible consequences it could have had, thank God he humbled me. I think that connects there to chapter one. If you're a rich person and God has humbled you and caused you to be dependent upon the Lord, rejoice because you could be this guy who's still a prisoner to his worldly desire to accumulate possessions and who is facing God's just wrath because of it. Praise God if you've been rescued from this kind of a heart because this would be you if he hadn't snatched you uh, out of that, that, the grip of that covetousness. And so even if unbelievers are mainly in view here, it's still uh, instructive to believers about the temptations that come alongside with money, and it warns us against the dangers of storing up treasures here on earth. Um, he, he brings out two sort of prongs about the dangers of wealth here. One of them is that your wealth will not last when you want it to. Uh, where, where wealth, what? It rots. Your garments, you can get the nicest stuff, but the moths will eat it. 
Your gold and your silver, what happens with them? Well, they corrode. Um, it's very parallel to the words of Jesus, where he's encouraging you not to store up treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but instead to lay up treasures in heaven. So the things of this world don't last when you want them to. But he also brings out another thing, and that your riches, they do last in a way that, that you might not want them to, in that uh, this rich person's wealth is going to stand as a testimony to the abuse of others that he committed to get it. Like, we call to witness on the stand all of your moth-eaten wealth. Answer for this, where did it come from and how did you get it? And this rich person has gained this wealth um, so selfishly that they have abused others to get it. They, they, they gained it unjustly. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And also, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So this witness goes all the way to God, and God will cause this rich man to answer for their injustice. This rich man lives on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Um, but in so doing, what have they done? They've just fattened up their hearts in the day of slaughter. They've just prepared themselves for judgment. And this rich person has condemned and murdered the righteous. So these rich people have just stored up treasure on earth. And what, what this says about them is the orientation of their hearts. Because we know the principle is, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So if this person's aim in life is to heap up treasures in this world, where is their heart? It's here. Uh, this is inevitable. This sort of person can't deflect and be like, well, yeah, I've gained all these possessions, and yeah, I've done it by fraud, and yeah, my life has been really, really, really wrapped up in accumulating all these possessions, but trust me, guys, this isn't what I care most about. <laughs> the pile of stuff is a testimony that, uh, yes, it is. This is exactly where your heart is. Um, their wealth is a testimony to their fraudulent methods, and they're doing it uh, they, as they live before God unrighteously. Uh, he, he is the one, the judge, that they will have to answer to, and they're storing up treasures when? Well, the end of verse 3, they're storing up treasures in the last days, and the end of verse 6, you fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. So they're living for their self, but their time is running out. There's coming a day when they will have to answer and be accountable for the method, uh, the injustice they committed to gain it, and for the orientation of their hearts in caring mainly about the treasures of this world. They've mistreated people. He's going to cause them to answer for it. Now, again, this passage is brutal. And we don't want to step back from it and pat ourselves on the back and be like, well, phew, I'm glad I don't murder anybody in my uh, pursuit of gain. But it should ins instead remind us that, that the pursuit of gain, gain is a really dangerous and alluring trap for the human heart. Um, 
that, that although we may be right with God and confident in our justification, we should look at this passage and go, gaining possessions in this life really is powerful. It really is dangerous. And perhaps we can even feel that, like, uh, uh, I, can, I can relate to the tug that it has on my heart, and that's kind of scary. Like, I, I need to uh, continue to rely on God to transform that part of my heart that feels that tug to store up things in this world, even um, without regard for other people or without regard for uh, what I most care about, which should be to be laying up treasure in, in heaven where things do not pass away. My heart ought to be here, but I can feel that my, my heart ought to be in heaven, delighting in God, but I can feel that earthward tug of my heart toward things of this world. Um, and, and we are all prone to that. And this should serve as a warning to us to, to uh, hate what God hates and to love what he loves. Right, he faced, he faced the judgment for his abuse of Lazarus or for his not even taking care of Lazarus. Um, a remo- uh, the fact that riches can be such poison should give us even an extra motivation to be obedient to that cause to pass it on, which is where uh, Paul has taken us with our work that it's supposed to benefit other people. Like, um, I-, I want to use this to be a blessing, but I also don't want to hang on to it because it could be a canker, a cancer to me. Let's move it toward causes that, that glorify God and that serve other people because I don't want my heart to get tangled up in the things of this world and in the treasures of, of this life that pass away. Um, if my heart has been transformed by God's grace, then that, that idol should be something that is... Um, Easier and easier, the, the idol of riches should become easier and easier to keep in a place where it's not an idol, but is a stewardship to use for God's glory and not just for myself all the time. Uh, the alternative uh, is to, to face God and have to answer for storing up treasures in this world. Uh, so there's two come nows. Both of them have to do with living before God. Uh, he controls my time and my plans. He controls um, and it holds me accountable for what I do with my stuff. And uh, I don't know, I, I can't tell you the, the definition of that phrase, come now, but it's, a, it's a, uh, an opportunity to think about it. Like, hey, you who s- come now, you who say these things. Hey, y'all, think about your, your presumption, your presumption. Think about if you have tendencies in that way. Come now, you rich. Think about this, guys. Let's put, put your mind and your heart, uh, hold it open before God's word, and see if there are things in which your heart needs to be exposed by these truths. Uh, do you need to be reminded again, Lord, uh, I need to live according to your will in that I'm going to do my things if the Lord wills for it to happen because you're in control all the time. And God, um, these these things that you that I work for, money, whatever, let this not be an idol. Help me not to store it up 
just for myself, but help me to steward it well for other people because the alternative is, is nasty and, and ugly. Let's close. God, um, thank you for these, these practical reminders. Um, if anybody else is like me, then we, we can somehow relate to the, the pull of these tendencies to think that we have control of our own lives and to think that, that uh, the things of this world uh, satisfy so, Lord, cause us to mortify those things, to put those desires to death, knowing that, that our old self that loved this was nailed to the cross with Jesus, and you've made us into an altogether different sort of person. So help us to live in a Christ-like way. Um, we ask your blessing on the coming hour and the, and the, the gathering of the saints. May you be honored in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.